Luke chapter 5. Um, let me ask you a question for starters. Have you ever found yourself in somebody's crosshairs? Somebody's just got it out for you, man, and they just seem to have you right in the middle of their target, you know? I remember years ago, we had, <clears throat> just a couple of years ago, we had our VBS going on. And God doing incredible stuff. I mean, he's bringing hundreds and hundreds of kids. Uh, we see several hundred giving their lives to the Lord. We've got, you know, oh, close to 200 servants from our church, people scheduling vacations to be there. And wouldn't you know it, we got this one lady, she's got us in her crosshairs, and she just is complaining about everything. I mean, she's complaining about the parking. She's complaining about the pickup. She's complaining about the free shirts her three kids got for, for, for VBS. And I couldn't help myself. I, I just ha- I, I'm like, you do know it's free, right? Like, like you slow to 20 and let your three kids tuck and roll for five days during the week. I mean, it's like almost 50 total hours when you add it up for all your kids. And, and, you know, it just, she reminded me, really, of a comedian I heard. He was talking about how he was flying on an airplane, and he said Wi-Fi on the airplane was the latest thing. It had just come out. He hadn't even heard of it. And, uh, and so they announced this. Hey, Wi-Fi is available. He goes, it's amazing. There I am. I'm at 30,000 feet. I can get my email. I'm texting my friends. <clears throat> and he says about 10 minutes into the flight, the Wi-Fi goes down. And he goes, and the guy next to me cops an attitude. He's like, oh, this is baloney. He's like, dude, you didn't even know this existed 10 minutes ago. Like, now you got this entitled attitude, you know, and it just never fails. There, sometimes we're just in the crosshairs of somebody, and Jesus, in our text, he's full-on in the crosshairs of the, the Pharisees uh, and, and, and the Sadducees and the scribes. They're, they're just, everybody's got him in uh, their crosshairs. And we saw it starting last week. Jesus forgives and he heals the paralytic <clears throat> and the scribes and the Pharisees, they got him in their crosshairs. They're complaining. Then, then he saves a sinful tax collector, like one of the most despised members of the community, gives his life to God, and now, you know, reaches out. Jesus is reaching out to save more. And once again, the scribes and the Pharisees complain. They've got him in their crosshairs. And now in our text, as we continue, they're at it. Again, pick it up in verse 33, where we left off. Then they, the scribes, the Pharisees, they say to him, Jesus, why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise those of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink? What they're saying to, 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 to Jesus, and the implication is that they're, they're saying, look, uh, John the Baptist had, had some disciples, and, and they, you know, here they are fasting. Uh, they practice fasting. And the Pharisees, we, we have disciples, students that we're training up, and, and they practice fasting, but here you are, and you've got your disciples here, and you don't fast. And the implication there is, is basically that Jesus isn't holy, he's not pure, and neither are his disciples. They're less than because they're not engaged in this act of fasting, the way the Pharisees think they should be. Now, if you're with us when we were back in chapter 4 of Luke, we, going through it, saw that fasting is intended as a spiritual discipline. It's where we starve the flesh in order to feed the spirit. And, of course, Jesus went into the desert and he fasted 40 days at the beginning of his ministry and so on. And the law commanded that the Jews should engage in fasting one day a year. It was set aside for a day of fasting and prayer. And 
you know, this idea to starve the flesh for the purpose of feeding the spirit. But the Pharisees, as they did with so many things, they added to it. And so they fasted twice a week on Mondays and on Thursdays. And that's cool. So long as it's for the purpose of denying your flesh, feeding your spirit, and a time of focused prayer. Hey, if the Lord leads you to do that, and it's a work and moving work of the spirit as he leads, great. That's wonderful. But listen, at the point to where it becomes a religious duty, at the point to where it becomes some sort of badge of holiness or you know, a source of pride and of boasting, that's where it crosses the line, and the, the scribes and the Pharisees, they had crossed this religious line. For them, it's this source of pride and a source of boasting and everything. And Jesus, speaking in Matthew's gospel, he was talking to his disciples, and he was actually talking about this, this behavior of the scribes and the Pharisees. And he said to his disciples, when you fast, don't make it obvious as the hypocrites do, For they try to look miserable and disheveled so people will admire them for their fasting. I tell you the truth, he says, uh, that's the only reward they're ever going to get. Later on in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is confronting the scribes and the Pharisees face to face. And he, he says to them, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of extortion and self indulgence Calls them hypocrites. Now, the word hypocrite, it comes from Greek theater. And, and you know, the, the, the hypocrite, the actor, would wear this big exaggerated mask. If you've ever seen the logo for, for the Screen Actors Guild, they have these old Greek theater masks. So one of them's got a smiling face, one of them's got a frowning face. And the reason they did this is because they didn't have the technology for a close-up. And so when you were at the theater and it was a you know, big old amphitheater, the people in the cheap seats had to be able to tell the part, you know, the different characters apart. And so the bad guy had the big frowning mask and the good guy had the smiling mask and so on. And so what Jesus is saying to, the, to these Pharisees, he says, you're all a bunch of actors. You're just, you, 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 inside is not matching the outside, you know. And, and so in response to their questions to, to Jesus, uh, he turns the, discru- the discussion from the outside, from the exterior, from the, from the outward appearance of fasting to the inward attitude of fasting, from the ritual of fasting to the reason for fasting. And listen, by the way, this is what our Christianity always comes down to. We've got to understand this going into it. That when push comes to shove at the end of the day, listen, what Christianity always comes down to is that it's not about what we do. It's about why we do what we do. It's not if you come to church, it's why you come to church. It's not if you're singing on the worship team, it's why you're singing on the worship team. It's not if you're giving when the tithe bag goes by, it's why you're giving when the tithe bag goes by. It's not if you're singing in worship yourselves, it's why. It's not if you're serving in the children's ministry or if you're parking cars or if you're doing something in service to the Lord. It's not if, it's why you're doing that. It always comes down to the condition of your heart and the reason that motivates why you do what you do. So Jesus responds to them now, verse 34, and he said to them, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those 
days. Jesus answers their questions with an allusion to the wedding practices of his day. And, and the idea here, he's painting a picture. He's saying, look, a wedding feast, and by the way, in this culture, the wedding feast was, was a huge celebration. It lasted for a full week. And, and he said, this is you know, what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be a matter of joy and, and exuberance. And, and, and what are you going to, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? It's not supposed to be like that. I don't know if you remember your wedding, if you, you know, have fond memories of your reception. I remember for, for Brenda and I, um, her father, it was all, doing the math in my head, almost 34 years ago. So he says to us, he says, I'll, I'll give you a choice. You can either have a big wedding and big reception or I'll, I'll just give you a check, and you can use it for down payment on a house. I'm like, let's take the check. Brenda's like, we're not doing that, you know. You haven't been dreaming about your wedding since you were a little girl, you know. Uh, that's me, you know. So I'm like, all right, so, so we, you know, we're going to have a big wedding. We're going to have a big reception. <clears throat> and we ended up having our reception at the Portsacal restaurant in San Pedro. It was beautiful, wall-to-wall, floor-to-ceiling windows across this, this reception room. And, and, and the ocean there, just beautiful sunset setting. And we're, we're working out the contract, and, uh, and the people go, look, here's the deal. You want the room, uh, there's a bar that goes with it, and you got one or two options. You're either going to have a, an open bar, uh, or you, know, you just have people, you have a pay bar where the people have to, to pay. And we're like, well, we don't want to pay for everybody's alcohol, so you know, let people pay for themselves kind of thing. And, uh, and they say, well, okay, well, wait a minute, you know, you, you got to do at least $500 worth of business, otherwise you guys got to come out of pocket for the rest. Brenda's like, my family's Scottish and Irish, my brother will spend $500, you know. <clears throat> and uh, you can pray for him, because he probably did. Um, at any rate, huge celebration, huge party, and, and this is what Jesus is saying to his critics. He's like, look, you guys, you, you, I came to make life a wedding feast, not a funeral. And, and hear me on this church, hear me, hear the Lord's heart on this. If church for you is rules and regulations and regimentation, if Christianity for you is all about do's and don'ts and outward appearances, you are completely missing out and you're missing the point. Because it's not about any of that. Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship with a living, loving God who loves you and who desires that you might have joy and live life more abundantly. And this is what we have in Jesus Christ. It's not a funeral. It's a wedding feast. It's not about what you do. It's about what Jesus came to do. And that's, that, that changes the perspective of everything. And the, the Pharisees, they completely missed it. So Jesus continues now in verse 36. He's going to tell them a couple of parables. It says, Then he spoke a parable to them. No one puts a piece uh, from a new garment on an old one, or otherwise the new makes a tear, and also the piece that was taken out of the new one does not match the old. You know, you got an old garment, it's already shrunk in the wash and all of this stuff, and you put a new garment on a new patch, and once you wash it and launder it and, and all, it too is going to shrink, it's going to tear away, that's his point. And then the second illustration, verse 37, he says, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins, 
They used to take wine and they would take, you know, the bladder, a goat's bladder, and they would use that, and that's a wine skin, and that's what would hold the contents of it. <clears throat> and what would happen is as it fermented, it would stretch out. And, and so he says, uh, no one puts new wine into an old wineskin. Why? Because it's already stretched out. It's got no more room to stretch, you know. Uh, and he says, or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled, and the wineskins will be ruined. But new wine, he says, verse 38, must be put into new wineskins, and both are preserved, and no one having drunk old wine, immediately desires new, for he says the old is better. Now, two stories, two parables. A parable, earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It's giving you an object lesson to learn a spiritual truth. And so what Jesus is saying here, he's saying that really, let me give you a picture of the gospel, of New Testament salvation. And he's, he's, he's explaining that the New Testament gospel, the salvation by grace through faith, that it's completely incompatible with the Pharisees' religious fixation on works. And if, if you try to patch together a religious life and you make it about Jesus and the gospel of grace and then you add something to it, it's about Jesus plus good works. Listen, it's going to rip apart and the reason is, is because Jesus plus anything else makes it, takes it all back away, not from what he came to do, but it puts it on you. Jesus plus anything else now becomes about what you do. And that is a, that, that's a religious system of works, and it's just, it, it rips apart, it breaks down. And in and, and, and the same way, the grace of Jesus Christ it bursts the confines of religious righteousness by work mindset that the Pharisees had. Chuck Smith explains this in his book, Why Grace Changes Everything. I highly recommend the book. Uh, if you're looking for, for a, a devotional book on grace, Why Grace Changes Everything. And he explains it. He talks about this, this attitude of religious uh, uh, you know, works-based righteousness. It's about trying to do good and try harder and earn a right standing with God. And basically, he, he describes it as it's a manufacturing mindset that I got to manufacture this work. And, and so what, what he says, he, he, he illustrates it um, with John 15, verses 4 and 5, words that Jesus spoke. Jesus said there, abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. And the implication here and the illustration that, that Chuck Smith uses, he says, picture an orchard. And you don't have a lot of mechanical manufacturing going on in an orchard. What do you got? You got fruit trees, and they're just abiding, man. You got sunshine, you got butterflies, you got the birds singing, and you got the nice breeze blowing, and you've got fruit that's being produced. It's not a striving manufacturing work. And it's just abiding in Jesus produces fruit. And the contrast is, man, I got to work to earn a right standing with God. I got to manufacture my religiosity. And, and it just never works, works that way. It breaks down. 
Isaiah the prophet said this. He said, we are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. He says, like autumn leaves, we wither and fall and our sins sweep us away like the wind. Well, the Pharisees didn't get that memo because they were all about righteous deeds. They were all about keeping the law because they thought that they could be right with God, made right with God by their actions. See, God had given them his law, but he gave them the law so that they would realize that they, in fact, were law breakers. This is what Paul talked about in in the book of Galatians. I'll throw a couple of verses on the screen for you. Galatians 3.19, Paul asks the question, why then was the law given? He says it was given alongside the promise to show people their sins, but the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He goes on to say this, He says, therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith, but after faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. That word tutor that Paul uses in Galatians 3, verses 24 and 25, it's the word paedagogos, and every Jewish kid knew what a paedagogos was. A tutor was those that would be very strict with them. When I was growing up, I went to Catholic school, and those nuns had nothing on my third grade teacher, Mrs. Roberts. She was strict. She wasn't satisfied to hit you with a ruler. She hit you with a yardstick. True story. Broke a yardstick over a kid's back. Like she'd be in jail today. But when I grew up, that's what you got, you know? And, and so she was this picture of the Pythagogos. What, what do I mean by that? The law, Paul says, is brutal. And the law shows you that you're a lawbreaker. It's only a matter of time before you realize, I can't keep this law. I, you know, Paul would lament. He said, that that I want to do, I don't do. That that I don't want to do, that's what I do. I'm a lawbreaker. Who's going to save me from this body of death? He answers his own question. I thank God, Jesus Christ is the one who does this. And that's the whole idea. God gave us his law to show us that we're lawbreakers and to show us that we need someone it will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And his name is Jesus. Paul told Timothy this. He said, this is a trustworthy saying and everyone should accept it that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I'm the worst one of them. He, he, he goes on to say, but God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Listen, here's a, here's a, a point of application for us and we really need to take a walk with this. We need to keep in mind, we need to remember who it is that we used to be. Because here's what I've discovered in my life, and I, and I believe maybe you've discovered it in yours. <clears throat> I remember who I used to be before Jesus Christ. I remember the life that I lived outside of Jesus Christ. And I remember what happened when Jesus Christ came in and took over lordship in my life. And what happens is he began to change me. And what we see happen in Colossians chapter 3, where where there's a death, there's a dying to the old nature. 
and where now I, I put off some behaviors and I put on some new behaviors and now I press on in godliness, not a work in my flesh to attain some right standing with God, but what happens is that just that now that Christ is my Lord and Savior, now that the Holy Spirit has been poured out in my life, well, then there's just this growth that takes place. It's kind of like your kids. You know, they just, they're growing. And, and maybe they're, you're with them all the time and you don't notice, but then all of a sudden you look back at some pictures and you go, wow, there's been some major growth there. And four of my grandkids just moved to Virginia in, in December and I, we were FaceTiming them just the other day and I went, my gosh, look at how they've grown just in a, just in a couple of months. And see, that's what happens in your life and in my life, that sometimes we don't, there's, it's imperceptible to us, the growth that takes place, but if you take the time to pause and look back at who it is you used to be, you're left going, my gosh, look at this growth that's taken place. Now, that's a beautiful thing, but what I've noticed is that we have a tendency, when God grows us and matures us, we start looking at things that you know, other people are doing that quite frankly maybe isn't even as bad as we used to be. But now we look at it from a, from a more mature place in Christ and we go, oh, that's ugly, that's nasty. And now what happens is we can become religious Pharisees ourselves. And what it is is that we lose sight of who it is who actually has done this great transforming work. It wasn't you. It was God and the power of the Holy Spirit who transformed you. And now what are you going to do? Are you going to take that maturing, that growth, that wonderful work that God has done, and now what are you, you're going to become some religious Pharisee that's going to look at other people and see, hey, you know what, let me point out what's wrong in your life. Years ago, I was at a pastor's conference in, at Calvary Chapel Vista, and Pastor Chuck Smith was teaching, and he gave this beautiful message, and he was illustrating this principle that I've just been talking about, and he, and he said, you know, it's like this. You know, you, you, when there's a traffic accident, there's two different, two different types of people that show up. He says there, there's the policemen that show up and there's the paramedics that show up. And he said, you know, the, the policemen, they're just looking for who's at fault. But the paramedic, they're not concerned about who's at fault. They just want to know who's wounded, who's hurt, who needs to be cared for. And this needs to be our, our, our attitude, that we, we can't forget who Jesus is and what Jesus does and what he's done in our lives, and we need to respond with this heart of love and compassion. Well, Jesus continues now, chapter 6, verse 1. Second verse, same as the first kind of deal here. It says, now it happened on the second Sabbath, after the first, that he went through the grain fields, And his disciples plucked the heads of the grain and ate them, rubbing them in their hands. And some of the Pharisees said to them, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And so here they are, they're on scene, they're showing up, and now again, criticizing, seeing the disciples doing what they're doing. Now, what the disciples were doing was not so much the problem as when they were doing it. The fact that they were going into a field that wasn't their own and plucking some of the heads of grain and, 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 and eating it, the simple fact that where they were obtaining this grain from the neighboring fields, that wasn't the problem. The, the law had said that was okay. 
Deuteronomy 23, verse 25 says this, And when you enter your neighbor's field of grain, you may pluck the heads of grain with your hand, but you must not harvest it with a sickle. Here's the idea there. Basically what it's saying is, look, you need a couple, borrow a couple eggs from your neighbor, that's cool. You back up the moving truck and start emptying their house into your moving truck, now there's a problem, right? That's kind of the attitude here. It's like, hey, you know what, you're hungry, you're going through your neighbor's field, there, take, some, take some, some stuff to eat. Have that kind of heart. This is, so, so what they were doing wasn't illegal, wasn't immoral, there's nothing wrong with it. And the Pharisees really didn't have a problem with the fact that they were doing it. It was when they did it, they were doing it on the Sabbath. And just like they did with fasting, what these religious leaders are doing is they're making this elaborate list of do's and don'ts regarding the Sabbath. That, hey, you, you can't do all of these different things on the Sabbath. Let me give you an example of one of their crazy rules. They had a rule <clears throat> that on the Sabbath you couldn't do any work so that included, like, if you needed to tie a knot in a rope, that that was work and you couldn't do that. They specifically mentioned that. So, you know, if, you're, if it's the Sabbath and you're thirsty and, and you need to lower the, the bucket down into the well, but you got to tie a rope on the, uh, knot on the rope to do it, well, you're out of luck, you can't get a drink. But they made an exception for women. A woman could tie a knot in her girdle and that was Okay. So an enterprising man might say, honey, come out here for a minute to the well and bring your girdle. And she could tie the knot onto the bucket and tie the knot onto the rope, and then he gets around the law, and then he doesn't technically break their law. This is the crazy thing when it comes to doing religious works to be righteous with God. It gets crazy like that. And I'd like to be able to tell you that that was something that happened a long time ago, but it still takes place to this day. David Guzik, in his commentary, is talking about uh, some Orthodox Jews in Jerusalem in 1992. They lived in this Orthodox neighborhood. The apartment caught on fire, and so they wanted to call the fire department, but according to their Sabbath rules, if they use a telephone and complete electric circuit then they are technically working on the Sabbath and breaking this thing. And so these Jews who have their, their apartment on fire go to find their rabbi to ask him if they can use the phone to call. And while all this is going down, two other apartments catch on fire and they all burn down. So this is the craziness of these religious rules and living by this religious rule system. And so they've got all these rules and they, the, the rule that's at issue here, the scribes and the Pharisees, looking at laser focus at Jesus and his disciples, the rule that they're upset about <clears throat> is the one pertaining to harvesting crops on the Sabbath. And according to their laws that they had put in place, you couldn't reap crops, you couldn't thresh crops, and you couldn't prepare food. And technically, the disciples were doing all three. They were reaping crops by picking off the, the, the heads of grain, they, they were threshing the crops by rubbing them in their hands, as the text says, and in the process, they're preparing food to eat. And so, as far as the religious leaders are concerned, they're three-time losers. Hey, you guys are breaking the law. So, Jesus now responds to them, verse 3. Jesus answered them. Now, again, he's going to use another illustration. He's like, can't you guys get it? I mean, we keep having the same lesson over and over and over again. You're living by a religious system. You're not living by relationship. 
and so he answers them and he says, have you not even read this? What David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he went into the house of God, took and ate the showbread and also gave some to those who were with him, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat. So what Jesus is saying here is, is he, he says to him, hey, you guys don't, haven't you read your Bibles? Now, this would have set these guys off because they prided themselves in, in being experts on the law. So when Jesus says, in effect, haven't you read your Bibles? Don't, know, don't you know what it says? They would have been very upset. But what Jesus is, the point that Jesus is making is, look, not that they, I mean, he knows that they, they have read their Bibles. He's saying, you don't understand it. I love William Barclay's commentary on this section of Scripture. He says this. He says, It's possible to read Scripture meticulously, to know the Bible inside and out from cover to cover, to be able to quote it verbatim, and to pass any examination on it, and yet completely miss its real meaning. In other words, it's not if you mark your Bible, it's if your Bible marks you. If, if you get it. And the, the thing is, is that, they don't get it. And once again, Jesus is trying to teach these Pharisees. So what does he do? He uses an example from 1 Samuel 21. If you guys were with us when we went through 1 Samuel, you'll remember this. David's on the run from Saul, wants to kill him. And he, and he, and he goes cruising into the town of Nob. And so there David is on the run and he's hungry. He's got no provisions with him. He's got a bunch of men that are, that are loyal to him, that are with him. They're all hungry. And he goes to the priest and he says, Hey, you know, do you, do you have any food for us? We're hungry. And the priest ultimately ends up giving him some of the showbread. Now, that's a weird name. What does it mean? Well, in the tabernacle, they had a table of showbread. There were 12 loaves that were there. They were there to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. They would have been freshly baked loaves that were sprinkled with, with frankincense. And, uh, and it went on the, this table in the tabernacle, which was on the right-hand side opposite of the golden lampstand. Now, showbread literally means bread of faces. That's why the weird name. Showbread, bread of faces. And the picture of showbread was that it was supposed to represent uh, that, that there's this, this bread that's to be eaten before the face of God, that you have this face-to-face time of intimate connection and fellowship. You see, in the, in, the, in the Jewish way of thinking, when you had somebody into your home and you shared a meal and you both partook of the same physical food element, that when that food went into your body and assimilated into your system and then your body you know, metabolized it into growing your own body and your friend doing the same thing, same food, it connected you. And so there's this picture. And so to eat showbread was to eat God's bread in God's house as a friend and as a guest of the Lord, showing his, enjoying his hospitality. And, and so in the tabernacle, this, this showbread was always supposed to be fresh. And the picture is, is that God wants our fellowship with him to be fresh. He wants our time before his face to be fresh. And it's also a, de- a, a picture of our dependence upon the Lord. That, that, that it was a way to say, just as bread is necessary for my survival, so fellowship with God is necessary for the survival of Israel. And so these 12 loaves, 
12 tribes of Israel, this picture of total dependence upon God. It, it, was a, it was a manifestation of what Jesus would say in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. That's the whole picture here. And so they would make this, and once a week what would happen is they would replace it. And when they replaced it, when they baked a fresh batch of 12 loaves, they put the new loaves there, then the priests were instructed, those 12 loaves, they're for you to have. Uh, Leviticus 24 verse 9 illustrates that. It says, and it shall be for Aaron and his sons, speaking of the showbread, it, the showbread, shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, for it is most holy to him from the offerings of the Lord made by fire a perpetual statute. So this, this verse, it doesn't specifically say that only the priests can eat the showbread, but it, it establishes a principle that it's holy and it just can't be distributed carelessly. And, and you see this in, in 1 Samuel 21 when David comes. The priest says, look, I have showbread. How's your heart? How's your men's heart? You guys, are you good with God? Are you, are you seeking to follow God and serve? Yes, you are. Great. Let me share this with you. And here's the point. This is the key to Jesus bringing this story up. And you got to get it. The point is, is that God is more concerned about the relationship than he is about the ritual. Yes, there's this ritual to have this bread and all that it implies. And yes, the, the, the bread when it's replaced is for the priests. But you could get stuck on that ritual and go... Dude, I can't help you. You're out of luck. This is the way God set it up. This is the ritual. No, the priest understood that, you know what, it's, it's the, religion, the, the relationship takes priority over the ritual. This is, this is what Jesus is trying to get through to these Pharisees. Look, you're all about these rules and the relationship, and you're, you're missing God in the whole thing because it's not about any of that. And so then Jesus, he concludes with a bombshell, mic drop moment. What's he say there in verse 5? Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is also the Lord of the Sabbath. Make no mistake, here's what Jesus is saying to them. He says, me, I'm the Son of Man, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. He's telling them this. He says, look guys, I'm God. That's what he's saying. And he says, and I'm telling you, you got it all wrong. That's what, that's what his point is. You've completely missed the Lord in your religion. And as we draw this to a close, here's your takeaway. Here's your point of application. I want you to hear it loud and clear. That God is not about you doing religious calisthenics. That is not what church is about. That's not what Christianity is about. God is not about you saying ten Hail Marys and five Our Fathers and following some ritualistic way of serving him, that's not what God is about. He's after your heart. He's after your heart. And the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's one of grace, it's not of works. And so if you're here today, there's a couple of points of application as we close. If, if you are a follower of God, if you've invited Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, then let me say two things to you. Number one, rest in His mercy and in His grace. Because the thing is, is that the Bible tells us God has written his law on the tablets of our hearts. We all intrinsically know, because God has implanted and printed his law on your heart, you know right from wrong. 
And you have the conviction when you do wrong. And the enemy will take that conviction and he'll turn it into condemnation. And he'll work with your spirit inside you where you feel convicted when you've wronged the Lord, when you've sinned against the Lord. And there is this temptation that says, I've done something wrong, I need to make up for it. I need to do something right. I need to overcome this thing. And, and listen, that's not truth. The truth is, when you're convicted, you just simply need to, to, to turn back to the Lord in repentance and say, forgive me, Lord. Jesus, cover that. He died for your sins. That means all your sins. Now, that's not a get-out-of-jail-free card that you can just live willy-nilly any way you want. No, you need to turn back to the Lord, but you need not do more than that. And the enemy might have you today as a Christian doing this dance to where he works both sides of the fence and he tempts you to sin and then you sin. And then he gets on the other side and says, well, you can't go to God now. You loser, you blow it. You better make up for that. And so we, we believe the lie and now I fellowship with the Lord with the only one that can save me, that can right my ship is interrupted because I've got tripped up on the fact that, well, I can't go to God now. Look at what I just did. No, that's precisely when you need to run to the Lord. And it's a matter of confession and repentance. Lord, forgive me. Have mercy on me. Your sins he will remember no more. If we confess our sins, the Bible says, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that word all means all, any, every, everything, total. The only sin that God cannot forgive is the sin of unbelief. And that brings to me to my second point. Actually, i got another point to make, but let me, let me just make it real quick. Just one last thing for you believers. You need to live like that, not live ripped off, not live a life of, of religious works. And you need to be an ambassador, a distributor of that. You can't ever lose sight of who you are in Christ and what God has done in you. Don't allow your progress in Christ to turn you into a Pharisee where you start judging the people who need Jesus the most. Let them see Christ in you. Let them see mercy and compassion and grace. Yes, tell them the truth, but tell them the truth in love. Don't become a condemning, judgmental Christian that's the first to jump in on a public forum and start ripping somebody up. The world's seen plenty of that. The Bible says that, 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 that all men will know you're my disciples. Jesus said this, by the love that you have one for another. And yeah, we gotta love one another, Christians, is, you know, with a loving heart, but the world needs to see that same love and compassion. Again, not that we condone sin, but who made you the judge and the Pharisee to be able to act in such a way that you condemn people? Now let me move to my second and final thing. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you're here today and you've bought into the lie that says that it's Jesus plus something else, that you've got to add your works to it, that you have to do something to, to make yourself right with God, listen today, hear loud and clear. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And the Bible says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I invite you today, if you 
have been ripped off by the enemy, if you know that you need to be saved, I want you to hear that the only one that can save you is Jesus, and he stands at the door of your heart today, and he offers salvation to all who will call upon his name. The Bible says that if you believe in Jesus, that he's the Son of God, if you confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead, that you'll be saved. So as we close in prayer today, let me invite you to that.